Welcome back to Pulp Friction. It's a show about what divides us. My name is Rocky. My guest is Cassandra Curiezus from the excellent podcast, Flap Soup. Hello. Hi. So excited to be here. Yes, this is going to be a good one. I've, 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 wanted, I've been wanting this to happen for a while. And yeah, uh, we're talking about a really exciting topic, too. Uh, La La Land. La La Land. That's right. 2016's La La Land. 2016's, I feel like 2016 was the year for people to get really upset about the stupidest shit. Yeah, absolutely. Everything was like a proxy for something else. Not that we need to mention what that is, but. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, I mean, you have a podcast, so I'm sure you know this feeling where it's like, am I going to run out of things to say? And then I think the fact that we're like 80 plus episodes in and we're just now getting to La La Land, it, it, it feels good. Yeah, absolutely. And this, I have to say, this episode, I had no concerns about running about running out of stuff to say related to this movie. I think there's like a thousand directions <laughs> to, to totally. go from. So we're going to get into all that. But first, there is our news segment, What's Pulpin'. I just wanted to, uh, you know, we haven't heard much about it recently. I wanted to hold a little space for Taylor Swift. Yes. <laughs> That's amazing that you haven't heard a lot about her recently. <laughs> <laughs> Where have you been hiding? <laughs> I've been very busy. Um, you have talked about the Taylor's versions on Flop Soup. We have, yeah. We were very down on the Speak Now re-release, um, but I we haven't mm-hmm. had a chance to talk about 1989 yet, so you're getting my fresh, unfiltered thoughts. Um, much better. Much just she's doing something fun on this one. Um, I do still think the Max Martin tracks sound bad, on this like there are def- some definite yeah. misses um but overall like the vault tracks are finally delivering something um and also just like i don't know i tweeted this already but like welcome to new york weirdly getting like a big second life on this album like there's like more interesting things happening here because i think this is a much more interesting album than um her other releases re-releases have been so I'm having an okay time. I'm not I'm not obsessed with it, but I'm like, okay, there's something to actually even consider here versus the other ones have been a little bit like, all right, and are we moving forward at all or are we really just doing a rehash? Um, That's interesting. But I'm that is an interesting perspective. I do feel like this is definitely the first one where I, it feels like there's what to talk about with it. I feel like my perspective is... I haven't really had skin in the game with the other re-releases. Like, there are songs from all those albums that I like, but I wasn't, like, bumping them when they came out. I wasn't, I didn't, you know, hear them thousands of times. I wasn't, like, listening to the album front to back. This is the first one where it's, like, I have been a fan of this album, and there's, like, five or six songs on here that I think are among the very best in her in her career. Um, so I went into this the night it came out, like you know 12 30 in the morning or whatever just uh listening to some of my favorites uh style new romantics uh blank space and i was just like this is a disaster (laughs) okay okay yeah and i think that those are some of the wrong ones (laughs) if you like those this will be bad for you 
that yeah those are i think those are all i think those are all max martin tracks actually yeah blank space especially is like do not listen to the re-recording you're gonna have to go to the og for that um i think same with style new romantics i don't have a solid perspective on but i have seen friends who love that song be interestingly trashing the new version and loving the new version so i guess divisive to say the least <laughs> um so it makes sense to me that you were like i really am unhappy based on the songs that it sounds like you're into <laughs> yeah i feel like it's it's definitely the max martin thing and we don't know why max martin has not been a part of these re-releases um some say he's like semi-retired or his producing fee is really high. The some of the rumor actually not to tie into my own podcast, but some of the rumor is because um Taylor wouldn't let Max Martin use any of her songs in his musical and Juliet, the Broadway musical that used all of his tracks. She said you can't have any of mine for this. What? Um <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and like that maybe he's mad because of that. That's like super a rumor, very you know hashtag alleged but we do have an episode of flop soup where we talked about this so i'm like weirdly tuned in (laughs) on this specific drama um so if that colors anything i love a good idea of a celebrity feud so it's fun to think that and by the way and juliet is a bad musical like and i don't think a taylor swift song would have made it better um but it's just fun to think that he's like dying on that hill (laughs) that's funny and you know now that you mention it 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 is weird (laughs) there aren't any taylor swift songs in that musical yeah it like is and isn't because i feel like most of the songs are like um pretty like 90s like late 90s boy band max martin era focused or they're like jesse j vibe like i feel like she doesn't fit in with any of that um so i don't really even know where it would go i guess like is if if love story is max martin produced but i I wouldn't think that it would be like love story would fit so, in yeah. with that musical. Yeah. Well, also because it's like literally Romeo and Juliet, but um, right. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. The, the musical is, I really encourage a listen to the soundtrack to just kind of be like, what have we done here? <laughs> like what, what is the point of Broadway? <laughs> like why? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's like definitely a tangent, but um, that is the like part of the rumor of why he hasn't been involved and and possibly the cause of why you're having a bad time with the re-release. It's, you know, kind yeah, of like a domino I, I effect so. situation. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> but how are you doing with the vault tracks? Like, are you, do you care? Are you like, these are nothing? I'm not into any of the ones from, from 1989, at least. I haven't, I don't think there are any vault tracks that I've thought were like worth listening to again especially because i think with most of them especially with these it's like i don't you know allegedly they were written at the time but they're clearly recorded with like a modern taylor sensibility they don't feel of a piece with 1989 at all not at all yeah i i do hate that like lore that she's forcing on us that's like actually these are from exactly when the album was written and it's like no they're not and and just stop saying that (laughs) yeah i think there was something about how like she was choosing between slut and blank space to be the lead single and it's like yeah they fucking weren't like shut up like i guess i guess that's only believable in the sense that the lover singles were so bad i'm like i guess you've made a horrible mistake before but like i mean it, it's just impossible to fathom because slut isn't good like that's not even a good one on here um yeah. i will say i haven't had a chance to revisit the bad blood like reiteration that they did i'm I'm curious how that feels um 
Because they brought Kendrick Lamar back. It's interesting that they had him re-record his verses because I I don't think he put a lot of effort into those verses. <laughs> so right, it's like- yeah, right. It's it's very like okay. So you were like, yeah, I'll put zero work in to be on a Taylor Swift track. That sounds like an easy payday, and then return for it. I don't know. Interesting. It is. Yeah. I mean, Bad Blood is a really bad song. <laughs> so like, <laughs> it's I was hard not, for me when I listen. I- I have fun with it. I have fun. When I listened to the remake of Bad Blood, I was like, okay, this is like what I remember Bad Blood being. Yeah. And it's even funnier to think about like, just like truly that is the funniest Taylor Swift song in terms of lore. Like her and Katy Perry fighting over backup dancers is like the (laughs) stupidest tale of all time. Um, Yeah. So it's just, it's funny to listen to, but I do have fun with it. I do. I'm like... I love to think about Lena Dunham in that like futuristic outfit she was in in the music video. Oh my god, yes! What what a <laughs> when that video dropped, it was such a such a weird like <laughs> cultural moment yeah, where it was like, was like, who's in the squad? <laughs> We're gonna die thinking about who's in the squad. <laughs> and, Le- and Lena Dunham was there. <laughs> uh, funny Dunham. stuff. Um, but the the Anne Juliet thing does kind of tie into. Our main topic today because they are working on a la la land broadway musical yeah it's really distressing i just was reading like refreshing (laughs) myself on the wikipedia page and i was like god we don't need that i really i mean oh god it's just like every musical coming down the pipeline is like why are we doing that like who is that for like I love La La Land the musical, spoiler alert for what we're going to talk about. I love, sorry, La La Land the movie. I don't need it to be a musical. It was a musical already. Like, there's nothing to add there. Like, there's something so strange because the movie is so about, like, movie musicals. Right. Like, it. it is so tethered to the idea of cinema. Like, the fantasy that it pulls you into is so cinematically specific. And I don't want to see it redone on the stage. Like, the magic of a stage production is totally separate from what they achieve in that movie. And, like, especially, like, totally. the – I mean, we're jumping ahead here. But, like, the ending sequence of La La Land, which I feel like is one of the most powerful, like – pieces of cinema from the past like 20 years how would you do it on a stage you couldn't and like that's it is so important to the entire thing you know i i don't know it's i have no no faith in that idea <laughs> you need someone who like i don't know they they haven't like announced a director or anything but i feel like you need someone with who is is as passionate about the stage as Damien Chazelle is about the screen. There's all these things like the the planetarium sequence, the openings. Like, there's all these things where it's like, you know, he's he's just thinking so visually with like the cameras and the and the and the wardrobes and how everything moves, the blocking. And it's like you, there are parallels for that on a stage, but you need someone who's not going to just replicate the movie, who's going to, to do like. A send up to Broadway music, but then the, the it's about LA, so you can't do that. <laughs> right? It's like it's about the completely wrong city. I mean, there's just nothing. I, I I really cannot picture it. And also, there's a lot of shots in La La Land that are about kind of like the intimacy, of the intimacy of the scene, like the close, yeah, close ups on on two the the faces of two movie stars. Which uh, another piece of La La Land that I think is really important to talk about is like this doesn't work without Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling. Like it's cheesy, it's corny, it's like 
so on the fine line of bad and good, like of bad mm-hmm. and transcendent, like, and it's so I think tied to like their charisma as actors. So I, you know, I don't know again how you're gonna. I I read a really insane review in preparation for this that was like, I only wish that we had a Sutton Foster or like a. You know, uh, I'm trying to think of like a who a male equivalent was. I don't remember from the article. Sun Foster, like an Aaron Tveit type who were in this to really do the song and dance numbers. And I'm like, you're so missing the point of this movie. <laughs> like, it was originally going to be Miles Teller and Emma Watson. Oh, God. And, and right. That's haunting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just think like, cause, cause like, there's there's so many things with Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone where it's like, first of all, they've worked together before. They have kind of that you know, old Hollywood duo thing going on. They are older, so it's like they've been chasing these dreams for a while, which I think is so important. Yeah. They come from a comedy background, but they're very talented actors. Like, there's so much that sort of comes together. And, yeah, the fact that they are not... I mean, they've done some music stuff before, but they're not, like, singers and dancers. Right, like, it it brings... uh, You know, you can... (sighs) Any movie you can pick apart to death, like, you could have the complaint of, oh, they're not the best singers and dancers out there, but I really, the movie caters to that. Like, it's, Emma Stone's sort of not, like, gorgeous, perfect, like, musical, you know, musical theater singing voice is the key to the emotion of most of her songs, of especially of her, like, audition song at the end, where she is, like, so intimately, like, delivering the story. However cliche that story is, we could pick apart the lyrics of the audition song until the cows come home, right? Like, oh, right. who are the dreamers? Who's this? Who's that? But there is, like, such incredible, like, intimacy and emotion in the moment. And also, they shot that, like, like, it was just her in a room, and, like, you can really feel it. Like, it's – yeah, I don't know. It, it's it's amazing. It's – yeah. <laughs> um, and it really works. Let's pull back a little. Uh, yeah. Talk me through your journey, your walk with La La Land. Yes, this is a great question. So um, I saw it in the theaters in December of 2016. Like, early on, I was like, I've got to go see this movie. I love to, you know, go see movies. I am always at the theater. And I don't know, I don't remember what I was expecting from it. Like, I am a huge fan of the movie Crazy Stupid Love. I just, like, have a great time with that. There was a period of time when I was in college where it was just always on HBO, and I would, like, just sit down and watch, like, 15 to 20 minutes of it here and there, but especially the parts with Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling. Like, I love the parts of that movie. So I have, like, a special place in my heart for them, for sure. So I saw it in the theater, and I I remember just, like, sobbing for the last like 15 minutes like just feeling so swept up in the magic of it just being like this is really i i don't know like i'm just having like such a wonderful moment here um so i had a great time just seeing the movie itself and then also i think more important is that like the next six months i would listen to the soundtrack all the time Like, I really Mm. liked the soundtrack. So, you know, whether or not that's me being basic, whatever, it's just true that I happen to know, like, almost every single word. I especially love the song Someone in the Crowd, and the part where um, the person jumps into the swimming pool is, like, stuck in my head forever. I I think that that's, like, such a fun, like... The music is is um you know building like it's it's reaching its apex and the guy jumps in the swimming pool like to me that was just like burned into my brain I, and then I just I was singing its praises I was like very excited about um you know it being like in the Oscar conversation I also saw Moonlight in the theater I thought thought Moonlight was 
really good, but a completely different movie, right? Like you're talking about like a dreamy musical movie cinema se- sequence versus like a very like I'm I'm losing my right words to describe Moonlight, but a very realist um grounded type of movie. It it has its like dreamy sure. elements, right? But like it, they're just so diametrically yeah, like- opposed. It's true. It's true. And and as we were saying, I think the the horse race of those two movies was really kind of America trying not to talk about itself, you know? Right. It was like a total proxy war for something else. Just to round this out, like I love to watch the Oscars every year. Like I always have people over. I I was like 20 two i believe when these oscars happen so like just a hilarious time of life i had like four or five of my like really close friends over we watched the mess up the confusion and we were like loving it like we just we loved the drama of it so like this movie on top of being a movie that i really like that to me is like one of the most fun moments in pop culture like ever like just the ridiculousness of that like time of our lives just like Seeing that happen, it will forever be amazing and funny. The meme of the guy holding up the thing that says Moonlight. I mean, it's just like such I like we owe so much culture to that, you know, and and it really is like why we watch those kinds of things. Like we want to see that type of insane, dramatic fuck up. So I love La La Land also for that reason. And I have seen it. Actually, I think only one time before I rewatched it for this, um, which is mm. interesting. Like it, it just it is in my head all the time, but I don't feel the need to be rewatching it. So whatever that's worth, I would say that is an encapsulation of my connection to La La Land. And I will, I will always defend it a little bit. I'll be like, yeah, La La Land, but we loved it. You know, we loved it. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's actually that is a good point that you bring up. This is probably the third time I've seen La La Land. But so much of it is burned into my head. <laughs> so, and yeah, let's, I want to hear your, like, what is your journey with it? Yeah, I mean, it really is a journey because I think, um, when it came out, I was definitely still in high school. I saw it with, um, I was already like going to the movies like once or twice a week, which I still do. I mean, with a break in the middle, obviously, <laughs> but, um, amazing. The, we, I saw it with a friend from school and my dad and my grandmother. That is very sweet. Yeah. And I remember, uh, my friend didn't really like it, but the rest of us were really into it. Um, at the time, I thought it was just, you know, it, it, it's so dazzling, so enchanting, and uh, I got totally swept up in it. I think by the time the Oscars actually happened, Moonlight it was definitely my favorite movie last year. There were a couple of, that year, there were a couple other ones like um, Arrival and Jackie that I was really into. Um, and so La La Land had like dropped a little in my estimation, especially with all the discourse around it. And I think for a couple years, my idea... Well, when you talk about La La Land and Arrival, I feel like Damien Chazelle and Denis Villeneuve are sort of in a similar space in my head and that they're both, like, French and they kind of came up around <laughs> the same time. And it's like... And they both um, have made a space movie. For, shout out First Man. Shout out First Man, yeah. Because, <laughs> like, I think after the Oscars for a while, I was like, there's a lot I like about La La Land, but overall it's, a, you know, a, a BB-plus movie. And, um... When First Man came out, there's a lot I like about First Man. I probably need to watch it again. Um, I think Villeneuve had Blade Runner. That was his closest movie to that. And um, I feel like having those two directors next to each other in my head, I was like, okay, Villeneuve has like a clear vision, a clear direction. Chazelle maybe got lucky with Whiplash. I don't know. Um, (laughs) And then Babylon came out last year. 
Did you see Babylon? Yeah, I that, that's actually I haven't seen um First Man and I haven't seen Whiplash. I have seen Babylon mm. and I fucking hated the shit out of Babylon. Just like one of the worst, one of the most infuriating movies I've ever seen. Not one of the worst, one of the most infuriating. I just the first half, I thought there was really almost something there. And then, you know, there's scale and, and drama and all that. And then it just descends into utter uselessness. And I hated the montage at the end. And I'm like, Damien Chazelle, that's enough of your obsession with singing in the rain. Like, I'm over it. I adore Babylon. Wow. Okay. So we're fighting. Okay. That's brave of us. Great. We're fighting. Yeah. We got it. We'll do the Babylon episode later, but. <laughs> <laughs> okay okay so you love babylon okay amazing so so then how did loving babylon <laughs> that got me in the pocket for damien chazelle for the first time that was the first time wow. i like i can't wait to see what damien chazelle does next what i think like i got so into the score for babylon and that made me rethink the la la land score and that that whole time all that time where it was like you know uh there are things i like about la la land but overall i don't think it whatever the song the first song in the movie another day of sun uh is just always in my head like like i have never it, it, it is never left yeah. behind and again so much of the movie hasn't either but another day of sun i think the opening sequence of this movie is one of the best uh, no i mean it's really great and and it really just does like set the tone in an amazing way it's like we're not in real life but we are but we're not and we're having some fun here you know like i i yeah, yeah. It, it's it's a great it's it's just a bold like entrance in a way that is i don't think enough people do you know you're supposed to grab people in the first 10 pages of a script or whatever right i'm like he's really grabbing you by the by the nape of the neck here and saying all right we're going to la la land but yeah that that is i guess the arc there is like i see la la land immediately i'm dazzled within a few months i'm like you know i like half of this and i don't like the other half of this um I haven't, I, th there are things about the discourse around this movie that I've never really agreed with. Um, I mean, we can get into it. So. <laughs> yeah, the, I, yes. Cause I think a huge, a huge piece of like, whenever you bring up this movie, it's the conversation of like, it's the white guy who wants to save jazz is like the, is like the main character and, right. um, the, the ways in which it approaches jazz and all that. And I agree with those criticisms, but I think they take up an outsized part of the conversation because the movie is so not about jazz. Right. It's not, not at all. It, it, I guess there's the criticism that it could have been, because it could have been anything, Damien Chazelle should have picked something different for him. But like, it really isn't about that. Like, it's like, yeah, he loves jazz. He could have loved any stupid little thing. Like, it's, it's just his little quirk and, and it's not so serious. That he loves jazz, it's that he wants to be a specific kind of artist. I will say, right. like, the ways in which he is such a white guy and, like, I, yeah, but we'll say, keep, keep going with what you were gonna say. I have a couple comments that I'll get to. Well, I think it's, it's true what you said that, like, he could have been a, a, a crab fisherman and the movie would have been basically the same. But the, the reason it's jazz is because Damien Chazelle is into jazz. But, like, right. I, I, I do think that, um, it doesn't come off well. I think that it, uh, for sure, it, it's uncomfortable <laughs> at, at times, but I, I think part of it for me too is I don't think you're supposed to totally like these characters outside of the, the romantic fantasy that built. I think when you're first introduced to them, they're like honking at each other in traffic. It's like, 
these aren't supposed to be, you know, self-inserts. Right. And and also, like, as most art is, like, you're not, you don't need to think that a person is only full of virtue. Like, there is this type of person who is, like, annoying to a fault about what they're into, and they're not having the entire view of what's going on. And But also, like, there is another argument to be made that in order to succeed at your dream, you need to be sort of, like, bullheaded and not questioning yourself enough, right, to get right. there. So... Yes, it's a totally valid critique, but I do think that the John Legend character um it does a good enough job of of being like, "Hey man, like why are you fucking stuck in the past? Like you're not even getting it. Like you are not even getting it." Like I, I think like, that that works well enough, I guess is what I'm saying. It's interesting cuz I feel like with distance from this movie, there's this idea that, you know, the legend character uh is sort of not thinking that deeply about it and is happy to be kind of a sellout and is sort of like this 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 like pseudo antagonist in in relation to um Sebastian but like he's just like right about everything and kind of the like you know i mean again we're what this movie does in an interesting way is it sets up these characters who are not totally likable or agreeable and then like their relationship with each other sort of gets you to see the positive in them as they're living out this musical fantasy and then the cracks start to show and suddenly you're reminded of why you might not like them and why they might not like each other right right because i think that's i think that's the thing about this movie that people either like or dislike you know when i when i brought it up in this server there are people who are like i just thought it was really boring and it's like i think the thing that people are responding to one way or the other is that it starts up i think this is what david ehrlich said that it starts up as a romance about movies and it becomes a movie about romance that's a good that's a good perspective on it um i was gonna say that's interesting to find it boring i actually find it to be very like popcorn entertaining but i do like a romantic movie so maybe that's my own bias there but i i find it to be like it like holds you wrapped because it doesn't get bogged down by plot very much like there isn't there isn't a ton of plotting. They sort of like skate over some plot in favor of like the story, like the feeling in the story, like moving forward, if that makes sense. Right. I tend to think so too, but it definitely, it starts off going full speed. And after the first two songs, everything's very intimate and uh, emotional and uh, often, you know, there there's like the romantic height that uh, in, in, in one moment and then like the back half of the movie, they're mostly not, doing well and they kind of they're kind of mad at each other the whole time and they're like like again it doesn't continue this like sweeping old hollywood thing from the from the beginning to the end it it like kind of pulls the rug out it does only to bring it back like for that last sequence of like oh there's like a rush of of like music and emotion which is why i feel like it works so well but it is it's supposed to be Mm. like uh tempered against like their relationship right it like stops being a musical as soon as they're like in strife as soon as they're out of their like honeymoon phase and he's like oh i'm in the reality i gotta make some money on the road um it also stops I, I think it's it loses its humor a little bit like towards the end because like in the be I, I have to say like it's very funny at times in the first hour of the movie I I think the the one thing I really laughed at was where um he was like getting her keys and he was like which one are you and she said I'm the Prius and then they're all Prius keys it's all Priuses. <laughs> right and, like the screenwriter character who's like boring the shit out of her at that party that they're at where where he's getting the keys or the the bit with the like I mean Emma Stone really sh- is shining when she's like making fun of him for being in an 80s band because she's like 
actually comedy genius <laughs> at the bottom of all yeah. of this. But and then also the scene where she's at dinner with her like you know lame boyfriend played by Finn Whitrock. The the side characters in this right. movie are that that's something I would like to get to. But um the conversation about like whether or not you can visit Nicaragua <laughs> and it's like <laughs> oh it's too underdeveloped there and like that sort of like totally annoying like yuppie conversation like i thought that that was like a very funny assassination of that of that and then yeah it becomes a little bit it's almost like dour for like 30 to 45 minutes in the middle but in a way that i think works yeah i think a lot but i think a lot of whether or not you like the movie is dependent upon whether or not you like that right i agree and i am definitely inclined towards it <laughs> The dinner scene is interesting because I've always, like, I, I had the pet theory for a long time that, like, in that scene, she, like, hears the little the little piano melody that, that Sebastian plays a bunch throughout the movie, and she, like, gets up and leaves and goes to see Rebel Without a Cause, uh, and by, the, the thing I always had in the back of my head was that everything from that scene to the last scene didn't actually happen. Oh, Okay. Okay. It, it's kind of, you know, it sort of doesn't matter, but but I think that that's the moment where it definitely pivots from I mean there's all there's fantastical elements up to that point, but it's the moment where it pivots from we're going to go from, it's it was where she goes all in and says I'm going to live this fantasy, this romance with this person who I've met like twice. And then at the end we see her like we see both of them having fulfilled their dreams and then kind of like seeing each other and having this this flashback of what things could have been that brings them right back to that spot and i feel like there there's an implication to that that's like you know whether or not they get together at all th this is where they end up and i think there's something so interesting too about how like because there is because it is very like sweeping and romantic that final sequence but then it ends with them again back in that spot but then kind of like going their separate ways and just sort of exchanging glances with each other yeah i mean i so that's interesting that you say that because it is like they're in their own world so much that it's like oh yeah the read on that like almost works because the other characters are even the john legend character they are so unimportant compared to the two mains like it's I, I had a lot of notes that were like, can you only use Rosemary DeWitt for two and a half minutes? Is that allowed? Like, like, <laughs> can you just have her be like this inconsequential sister who, like, what was going on with the scene where Ryan Gosling is playing piano at her wedding? And why is she, like, same with like Emma Stone's three friends that she goes to the party with, the three friends that she lives with, the way that those right, three women were total nothing burgers i was like yeah. why aren't these anyone with any sort of pizzazz charisma why are they adding so little like all that they really do is wear those beautiful dresses so it's it's interesting that your theory works because it really is like everyone else is so and that's part of the charm of the movie right it's so focused in on them that like everyone else is is nearly incidental yeah and and like all the characters that come up in the first part like rosemary duet like the roommates like um JK they, they disappear they're gone for, for for the rest of the movie basically <laughs> right it's like they have no they have no grounding in anything else which i think brings it back to like they're really it's not self-inserts that they're supposed to be these people are so like overtaken and obsessed with their dream that they're like nearly isolated <laughs> Um, but I, right. I think there's also an argument of like new love will have you feeling like oh that feeling of isolation so like when they're first getting together but keep going it's true but I, I sort of tie it back to the idea that they're not supposed to be totally likable when you really think about it because 
they you know they clearly have all these uh, there's like like the screenwriter character there's all these people around them who are like social climbers of some type who they kind of shun and they're like you know every you know everyone's fake whatever but then they are so (laughs) antisocial in ways that come out in the first part of the movie and then are sort of implicit in how they spend all this time together you know they they're also still like obsessive uh, dream chaser- chasers to the ex- to the same extent that everyone else is. Where Se- Sebastian's got like uh, Charlie Parker's chair or whatever in his in his house, yeah. and he's complaining about like people being superficial. You know, and it's they like, worship you know, everything and they value, value nothing, nothing. I think you said right. I did read an interesting IMDb piece of trivia that actually that's something that Ava Mendez once said to Ryan Gosling, and he ad libbed it. So interesting to think huh. that that's that's from her. <laughs> um but yeah no totally totally agreed they're like kind of fucking assholes and it's like and then also the ending sequence i actually feel like the subtext of that ending sequence is that ryan gosling got in his own way of this love story um Mm -hmm. you know the he walked in the in the like ending romantic sequence he originally had brushed past her but he kisses her immediately instead he's like i'm gonna take this full on i want this to be my dream instead of the jazz club right like the implication is like he needed to have given that up to support her if they were ever to be happy together he's not going to be at a photo shoot for her one woman show he's going to be like giving her like the attention and nurturing that she needs i think a lot of it is like i mean my read my read on it this time was that kind of they're both chasing their dreams but i think they both got into like each other's perspectives mia kind of does the sebastian thing of like not not taking anything you know the dangerous minds meets the oc thing not taking that and being like i'm gonna write my own thing and i'm gonna do it myself and it's gonna be like my whole production and then sebastian takes sort of the mia angle of like this is this is something that's right in front of me that's a big opportunity and even though it conflicts with what i had in mind it'll it's still like me achieving that dream of being successful in music and then that like brings them success at first and then they start to like kind of resent each other for it yeah because also it's like it's hard to have time for for each other when you're doing that i mean and yeah when they argue about that that dinner scene is like so well done when it's like he's like oh well i'm gonna be you know on tour for a while we record and then we're on tour and she's like well what (laughs) like what are we doing here like those like tight close-ups on their faces like that that scene really works but yes i agree it's like they are getting into each other's perspectives and which which brings me to another point of um what does selling out mean in this universe that that is another bone Mm. that i think is valid to pick of like Okay, so Emma Stone happens to get to do an indie movie, but she would have been happy to take The O.C. Meets Dangerous Minds earlier, right? Like, But she's kind of right. like, are you happy with what you're doing, Ryan Gosling? And it's like, it's interesting to like watch like whose standard is for who about like what the concept of selling out is. And is John Legend really selling out or is he? Yeah, which I think I think the answer is no. He is keeping like an idea of jazz alive. By the way, this is a good time to ask. Do you think Start a Fire is a good song? Yes. <laughs> Same. It rocks. It's kind it's of rocking. It's kind of one of the best it's songs in the movie. Yeah. Um and it's the yeah, only one like, that it's, it's, it's the only uh, one that Pasek and Paul didn't write too. John Legend wrote it. Interesting. I love to know that. I did not know that before now. I feel like that's kind of a th- that's a clever way of like distinguishing it from the other songs of the movie though. Yeah, no, it definitely is. It's like, why don't we just have John do this one since it's not supposed to be this sort of almost like this the smarmy feeling of the others, like the the like 
oh, this is a musical. Here's our little maudlin ballad. I do have a lot of thoughts about, because there's, there's, I guess the parallel thing would be something like, um, why did you do that in A Star is One? But that's also a really good song. Anyway, but like. Love that song. I'm, I'm team, I'm team. I love the way that that song makes everyone go. Is it supposed to be good, bad, or bad, good, or. Yeah, but it rocks. <laughs> Oh, by the way, I'm a huge Star is Born fan. I I think that also colors – I think that colors a people's yeah. understanding of, like, what my relationship is here. Like, I love a piece of melodrama that lands. Yeah. I feel like um, the Venn diagram of people who like La La Land and people who like A Star is Born is probably pretty <laughs> pretty much it's a circle. It's just a circle. But it's I, a circle I, I, that I'm the president of. <laughs> <laughs> You're the president of the circle. I do have a lot of things – a lot of thoughts about – about john legend's band uh they're called the messengers and um when gosling comes in they already have a a a record deal there's the clip of them doing the radio interview and it has like a million views on youtube and it's like and then yeah and and, it's like the 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 song itself is like is like more of a pop song and it is it's like a good pop song you can see like people but but i don't know this idea of this like (laughs) this like kind of jazz influenced like five-piece ensemble <laughs> being like you know the the next big thing in pop it, it it sort of feels like it says more about how damien giselle thinks music works <laughs> than it does the music industry oh absolutely i mean it's like i think an amazing thing about this movie is how totally divorced from time it really is it's like I guess they have iPhones, and that's sort of, like, the only clue into, like, when you are. And mm-hmm. the idea that the 80s was a while ago and and is cheesy. Like, that's kind of it. And, like, Ryan Gosling's obsession with jazz is so weirdly, like, stopped up in the 60s. Like, he mm-hmm. has no, like, access into anything after that. And also, weirdly, John Legend is something that brings it into its contemporariness. Like, the idea of John Legend is very 2010s, you know? Right. Like, late aughts, 2010s. I I have been thinking about, like, who would be, like, a more sensible jazz musician to hire for this role? And I could only think of, like, John Baptiste, maybe? Like, someone who is even more, like, they happen to be doing jazz now, but, like, not really... Yeah, I don't know. The movie is very, like, not tied to time. I could see someone, like, I guess, like, Alicia Keys would be interesting, Alicia Keys would be hysterical, actually. (laughs) That would be like an incredible, it would be too distracting, honestly. You would be like, that's Alicia Keys. Why isn't anyone saying anything about who that is? (laughs) But I think there's definitely something to, I mean, first of all, there's like the, the, jam session with the band where john legend starts playing like the drum machine and then like it's shortly after that we see the clip of the youtube interview i think there's definitely an element there of like the rest of this is wrapped up in old hollywood and like you know other than minor cosmetic things this it's it's like totally out of its time and then john legend is sort of like here's modernity here's how things actually work in the real world (laughs) we can start a fire in the year 2015 let's go (laughs) yeah the year of uptown funk i mean you know oh yeah that's yeah wow uptown funk what a moment in time best song of all time oh the radio interview what i loved about the radio interview was like oh it's like yeah they're getting famous and then you just get a clip of ryan gosling saying i'm sebastian like yeah. if you read his lips like during the interview he's going i'm sebastian <laughs> and it's like what are we actually getting out of this like 
Like, oh my god, she's introduced himself during the radio interview. What a fucking sellout. Like, okay, what? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it is like, it's like, how does music even happen? I mean, I guess, how did anyone get famous in the music industry in the past like 15 years? I feel like it's a mystery. So how could you capture it really? So Damien Chazelle said, I made something up. It's just a weird thing for him, for John Legend to run into his friend from college and be like, oh, my band just got signed for this record label, but we still need a keyboard player. (laughs) I know, I know. It's, yeah, there is like one moment of levity where Ryan Gosling is like, you know, guys like me work their whole lives for a steady gig like this. I'm like, thank you for acknowledging that it's actually so insane lucky that you were offered this at all. But like, there's not really any other acknowledgement of that. Because Mia is so like, is this what you want? Like, Mm -hmm. let's let's talk about Mia. Yeah, let's talk about Mia. I I think there are are a lot of criticisms of, of the Mia character. There are a lot of ideas that she like, I don't know, is annoying, or she doesn't have enough agency. I feel like she, um... I don't know. I think I, I think she's I, I think she's a good character. I see how people who again people who are not into the direction that the movie goes would maybe see her like see how she was you know kind of kind of like pushing him to go for it and then like had a pretty sudden pivot to like well do you like this <laughs> you know yeah i i kind of don't agree with that like i feel like he's going off of like one overheard phone call with her mom like if you're if you're really taking the plot as literally as like this type of criticism would require you to he's he's going off of vibes he's having an insecurity that she's not going to be happy with him if he doesn't like you know manage to make a buck Right. Yeah, I don't know. But but the Mia character, yes, I totally I see that criticism. And then I would say again, it's like, okay, you're 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 looking too closely at the text. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think there are certain things that I took too literally the first time I watched like like the seasons. Like I watched it this time and I was like, oh, this could have been this, this couldn't have actually been an entire year. The way that the story goes, like this is just the seasons of the relationship. Right. Right. And also, like, I think that there's something cheeky about the fact that it's Los Angeles. And like, yeah, it's winter because there's Christmas. But like, how could you really know? Like, you know, that, that's, they, I, they I didn't mean, even show like a, you know, a rainy February. Right. It, it's funny when there's the moment in the someone in the crowd scene where like there's snowfall. That That's kind of funny. But like, I, I, I at least totally forgot about the fact that the first and last scenes of this movie take place on Christmas. <laughs> Right, right. I mean, it's all like, it's metaphorical, right? It's like, it, you, it's reminding you that you cannot take this movie literally. The snowfall in the someone in the crowd scene, that, it's like confetti, like, and it happens again when there's like a magical moment between the two of them, like a couple, maybe like 10 or 15 minutes later in the movie. It's like, this is a device, like, it's a fantastical element. Like, you are not meant to be thinking this hard about this movie. Like, it's, it's intent on giving you a feeling more than, more than anything else, I think. Um, so when you criticize the Mia character and you say, how come, like, I read, what did you read Richard Brody's review in The New Yorker where he's like, how come we never see her arguing with a lighting technician or, or collaborating with others on her one woman show i'm like it's not fucking about that like how is this how is this what you're angry about like i don't think that ryan gosling's character is given so much more texture than hers she wants to be an actress for some loose reason she had an aunt who she really admired she liked bringing up baby when she saw it so ryan gosling likes jazz i mean there's not a bunch of like explanation into why he likes it he's like you just gotta see it I love Charlie Parker. Like, that's not a lot of texture there for you either. So, yeah, she's not a well-written female character who 
you know, it's like, it's the movies, baby. If you love them, you're used to this. I'm not excusing it, of course, but. Right. And again, like, the movie doesn't work without Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone, and a large part of it is that Emma Stone brings so much to someone who is not given so much to work with. You know, like, she really imbues a lot with her, those doe eyes, the biggest eyes in the industry, you know? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that, like, she sells the, the saddest moments of the character so hard because of, because of her eyes, really. And then, like, you, you sort of forget about the moments, like, like the scene at the party when Sebastian's in the cover band where she's, like, kind of fucking around. <laughs> and, like, I, I feel like there is a lot of texture to the character in those moments, but. Yeah, that there's, like, a woman fighting to break out. <laughs> Yeah, it's, I sort of see how, like, I mean, it's kind of true of both of these characters that they, or or any characters in this movie that, like, they could be someone completely different in the next scene. Yeah, for sure. Like, it's, uh, yeah. And, I don't know, it it really does feel like there's, like, some some semantic argument that that happens here where it's like, well, what do you think a movie is for? Mm. You know? Like, what what is the purpose, what is the point of the movies? You know? I. Should we answer that question? Do you feel like you have an answer to that? You know, I see, I see one and it works. You know, that, that I have a feeling of it works. Like it worked. It did. It accomplished something. And I do feel like La La Land accomplished something. It's definitely not, uh, you know, examining the inner lives of its main characters. I wouldn't say that's what it accomplished. Sure. I would say on this watch, I don't think it works in the sense that i think the first couple numbers are operating at such a high level and then when it becomes more narrative and more about these characters and the contours of their relationship again it like it has that problem where the characters feel like different people from one scene to the next and when when you're focusing more and more on them and their relationship it 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 feels like a series of images uh, more so than a movie, which, you know, I'm talking about Babylon, but, um, the... <laughs> Speaking of a, a series of images, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it, um, sort of drops off after, after someone in the crowd and never quite makes it back. But at the same time, there's the undeniable fact that this movie is totally etched into my brain, having seen it like twice before now. You know, it, it, I do think it is vulnerable to these types of tr- critiques to what you just said of like, oh, I don't know. Like, I feel like it drops off. It loses its momentum. But I, I think that there is intentionality behind the, the pacing and the flow of this movie um, that I really, I ultimately think succeeds. Um, I think it does say something meaningful about like, you know, sacrifices made for art. It's absolutely speaking in hugely broad strokes, but it's also being very specific in the in the language that it's using to con- kind of convey that message. And also, like, you know, it does just it, it does invoke those feelings of like new love of of sacrifices you make for love of things that you lose, all of that. Like, I feel like it it just does accomplish those things. And and to boot, it's like incredible imagery throughout whether or not the actual music is so good. I don't know. I just think it's really like greater than the sum of its part. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Is that how the, the phrasing goes? Um, it has a je ne sais quoi. That's what I want to sure. say. And like I said, it really is like it, it depended on so many things to really come together. I think for that, every little decision. Um, yeah, I have my notes on the, the history here that we can get into just a little bit for, 
for context. Yeah. So Damien Chazelle has his breakout movie, Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench, in 2009. It was a student film, but it got some distribution, some awards, and so he, like, goes out to Hollywood to try and make his next thing, which is going to be La La Land. He already has the idea for it. Right. Uh, but at first, um, he can't really get it financed because it's a musical. <laughs> um, and <laughs> He's like, I'm going to need many millions for this. And they're like, I don't think so. Well, that's actually the thing. They, uh, he kind, he was willing to do it at a pretty low budget at first. And there was a point where Focus Features was offering him like a million dollars for it. And, but they, but, but they wow. also, they also wanted like Sebastian to be a rock musician instead of a jazz musician. They wanted to change the opening number. They wanted to, uh, <laughs> make the ending more conclusive. And Damien Chazelle was like, fuck it. I'm just not doing it right now. Obsessed with the idea of him being like, no, he had to be a jazz musician. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of funny. <laughs> like, look, Damien so he Chazelle. He did double down. We have proof. <laughs> Uh, again, I think I think Chazelle's a little self-aware about like how annoying <laughs> Sebastian is about jazz, but like he, he is kind of a self-insert character for Chazelle. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So he starts working as like a hired gun screenwriter. Um, he wrote The Last Exorcist Part Two. <laughs> he wrote, um, yeah, he wrote like Piano. a horrible, yes, Grand Piano. Do you listen to the podcast? How did this get made? I uh, I do, but. Um, I haven't heard them talk about this. Okay, they do They do an episode on the grand piano. It's very funny. It's very... Because Elijah okay. Wood was in that movie. It's a must... Rec- I just must take a moment to recommend. <laughs> I'll listen to that for sure. Uh, he also did a rewrite on 10 Cloverfield Lane, and there was the idea that he was going to direct that, but doing he ended up like dropping out of that to do Whiplash. And the idea with Whiplash was like, I can't get La La Land made but I want to play with some of these themes. He had like a really strict music teacher in high school. And so he just sort of like, this is something I can get made cheaply. I can get like an indie studio to get behind it. Uh, Blumhouse actually is the one who makes it, which is so weird. (laughs) Blumhouse made Whiplash? That is wild. I did not know that. Yeah, I kind of forgot about that. But, um, But Whiplash is a huge hit. Makes a lot of money at the box office. Wins three Oscars. And now Damien Chazelle gets to make La La Land. Uh, Summit Entertainment, Black Label Media, and Mark Platt, who, who uh, Mark Platt. we've talked about Mark on the Platt. show before. Our old friend Mark Platt, who's also producing the musical version. Right. Of, I mean, of course he is. <laughs> Mark Platt. Yeah. He's Mark Platt. Like, like, who else would do it? He's Mark Platt, right. Who else would do it but Ben Platt's father? Uh, right. I, I know that he was famous first, but still. <laughs> yeah. If we're lucky, Ben Platt will be Sebastian. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. Just that would kidding. be really funny. <laughs> um, I, I mean, we'll talk about Pascal Paul too. Who, I mean, we did the episode on Dear Evan Hansen, but they uh, kind of. I mean, I think La La Land is definitely the gateway to them being like the person, the people who Disney calls when they want like a, a fuck off song to put in their live action remakes. <laughs> like, like right. So, so I do think that there's an important point to be made here about Pascal Paul and just like the general like flash in the pan nature of this movie. I think that they are largely bad. Like, mm-hmm. I hate The Greatest Showman. I hate 
like I don't hate Dear Evan Hansen, but there's like something fucking cloying about a lot of those songs. And Absolutely. like for some reason their like cheesiness, their generalized clicheness just works in La La Land. Like by by some miracle. Like yeah, and and so since then, yes, they're everywhere, but in a way that is not good. <laughs> like in a way that yeah. I'm like, I don't like this. Um The only other thing of theirs where I think it kind of worked was Lyle Lyle Crocodile last year. I think, like... Wow. Okay, gold star for being the only person who saw that. (laughs) There's a strange sort of Venn diagram with Lyle Lyle Crocodile and La La Land, where they... Okay, okay. They're very... They're very different movies, but they both sort of, like, reach a level of uh, sort of earnest kitschiness where the Pazic and Paul vibe kind of doesn't hurt them. Okay, okay. I mean, I believe you. Like, I... Yeah. I believe you. Weirdly enough, I believe you. Do you make graphics for this podcast, like promotional ones? I think the Star is Born La La Land graphic and the, and the La La Land Lyle Lyle Crocodile graphic could really go a long way. <laughs> Lyle Lyle Land. <laughs> Lyle Lyle Land. Wow, I'd love that crossover. And here's what I'm disappointed by. Why is there no La La Land cinematic universe? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, maybe there is. You didn't see the post credit scene of Lyle Lyle Crocodile. That would have yeah, said oh the Oh my god, thing really good point. <laughs> the guy playing um, piano in the corner. It's <laughs> yeah. Oh, Pas- but yeah, Pascal and Paul, it's just like they're... I'm like, do less, please. Like, we don't need you everywhere. It's very like they're uh, like a Lin Manuel Miranda analog in terms of like there is just a saturation of the style. Totally, but I think Lin Manuel Miranda's style. I I don't think the Pasek and Paul thing ever worked. I, I it like like the songs in La La Land are good, but I don't think their style of songwriting ever had an appeal. And I think Lin Manuel Miranda's did at one point. Be- yeah, because, I think that that's that's y- yeah, fair yeah. to say. But yeah, I mean, like, even so, like, a song like City of Stars, like, I feel like by itself, like, there is, like, a, well, okay, what what are we doing over here? But then, like, within the context of the movie, they, like, I don't know, it just works. It's magic works. Like, there is something, something there. Patrick Waksberger, who uh, was an executive at Summit, is the one who convinced Damien Giselle to up the budget because he had worked on the Step Up movies. And he learned from those that a high-quality musical can't be made cheaply. Like, you need to go all out. That is incredible. That is an amazing fact. Yeah. Y- you know what's a good movie? Step Up. <laughs> I haven't seen it. Oh my god, really? I The dance sequences no. in Step Up are actually amazing. It's a stupid, like, plot-wise, it's very stupid and, like, overwrought, but, like, th- they are amazing to watch from a dance perspective. Like, and Channing Tatum is doing horrible acting, and so is his the woman who was his wife for many years, but, like... It is like a spectacle from a from a music and dance perspective. I love to see that man dance. It's so true. It's so true. Channing Tatum is sort of reviving the movie musical in some ways because of all the dancing that he has done in that movie and the magic the magic mics. Yeah, and the one scene in Hail Caesar. He he he's got to yes. keep going with it. I love. I always love to see Channing Tatum in anything. And Ab- absolutely, um, yeah, we need more of him. And he signed the ceasefire letter. Um, the, he did. What happened with? Great. He did, yeah. What happened with Miles Teller and Emma Watson? Miles Teller just couldn't like reach a deal, and Emma Watson dropped out of it to do Beauty and the Beast. The interesting thing is Ugh. Ryan Gosling dropped out of Beauty and the Beast to do La La Land. <laughs> thank God. Oh my God. Thank God. See, like this is like blessed coincidence. Like the movie is just—it's like a beautiful strike of lightning in its greatness because. 
Emma Watson would have been horrible. Like, I cannot mm-hmm. a- picture a worse person for this role. Miles Teller also just doesn't have... He doesn't have it. Yeah, I feel like I feel like with Miles Teller and Emma Watson, you still have the angle of, like, you're not supposed to like these people, but you couldn't be charmed by them anyway. Like, if they're playing unlikable right. characters, they're going to be unlikable. Right. Ryan Gosling, I really... He has, like... He's so good in a romantic role. Like, he really just... Totally. It, nobody can play in love like Ryan Gosling. And, um... Yeah. It was very key for this. And, and Miles Teller... Miles Teller can be good in things, but, like, I, I think he... I think that movie, The Spectacular Now, was, like, awful. Like, he, him and Shailene Woodley are <laughs> supposed to be, like, in love or whatever in high school. And I, I really was, like, not moved by their love. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then Emma Watson, can she act? Question mark. We'll never know. <laughs> we'll literally never well, know. She, somehow she's gotten so far without tipping the hat one way or the other. <laughs> like <laughs> right. we're twelve years removed from Harry Potter, and we still don't know if we she can act no or idea. not. <laughs> People are still just deliberating about like, was she good in Little Women? Like, where are we on that? <laughs> like, and at this time, it was like she had done like the Bling Ring, and this is the end, and it was like, okay, she's building her like post harry potter career and then after she doesn't do la la land it's like she does beauty and the beast she does little women and like not much else she's like i feel like semi-retired i feel like she's always saying she's retiring from acting she's like a weird business with her brother she's married to herself like there's so many other things she's doing that are not acting and and that's great stay there (laughs) stay in that space you were in the harry potter movies you don't have to work again it's not important that you work yeah but it seems like every couple years she's like "Eh, maybe i'll try this again (laughs) yeah this is like jump scare i mean the beauty and the beast movie was so bad it was like so bad and by the way ryan gosling would have just been in the suit i mean what a waste of him yeah absolutely i think there is um ryan gosling has a band called dead man's bones it's very good but love it love that band my favorite halloween song my body's a zombie for you yeah but like i i I see why you put him in la la land because he is not a a, an amazing singer and dancer because he like he's like a movie star but he can be like the regular guy in that context why would you put him in beauty and the beast Right, that's a musicale. <laughs> like that's like right. Oh uh, yeah, no. I mean, really good question. And and thank God it didn't work out that way. What a world it would have been. I mean, Truly. a worse one. A worse one for sure. I'm I'm happy yeah. that we have La La Land. I love to have a conversation about like, yeah, absolutely. On any given day, you could be like that corny piece of shit. I'm like, yeah, I get where you're coming from, but I love it. <laughs> I think it is movie magic at its most movie magical. There's something there's something to note about how La La Land is one of the movies in the Nicole Kidman AMC uh, pre-roll. And, oh, I've never even noticed that. I think it's so interesting what movies they pick because it's all it's all blockbusters. It's all stuff like. Um, you know, Wonder Woman and and Jurassic World and yeah, it. I remember Jurassic World. They're really trying to pick things that like were like really well seen or really well liked, and the fact that La La Land is in there. I, I mean, it made a lot of money. It's definitely a movie that like many many. Oh yeah, that, that, that is like very much part of the zeitgeist in a way that it's hard for like awards movies to get there, or it, it certainly was for the better part of the last decade. You know what's actually so interesting? Okay, I'm looking at the, first of all, the Nicole Kidman AMC ad has a full Wikipedia page. Um, Mm -hmm. So in the minute-long version, it's Star Wars, Force Awakens, Jurassic World, Wonder Woman, Creed, 
and La La Land. So, like, the first four are, like, very much, like, part of, like, a long history of movies, its sequels and whatever, and then La La Land standalone. And then the 30 and 15 second versions feature Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse and A Star is Born. That Interesting. is... That's really... I'm fascinated by that. Um, Billy Ray wrote the commercial. <laughs> wait, say that again? Billy Ray, the screenwriter who did, like, Hunger Games and Captain Phillips, wrote the AMC commercial. <laughs> oh, that's, like, so funny. His best work, honestly, based on the rest of this list. Yeah. <laughs> he wrote Richard Jewell. <laughs> yeah. Wait, that's so funny. Flight plan, state of play, but his true magnum opus is the AMC commercial. <laughs> I'm crying. Oh, wow. Okay, but yeah, sorry. La La Land made um like $500 million, right? Like yeah. so that's that's a huge that's a huge hit, but it's like I'm just intrigued that like that in Star is Born, like those are melodramas and those are like so like the movies, you know? Right. And then, okay, Star is Born made $436 million, so they're both, like, kind of... Yeah, and they're both, like, very, like, pop culture. People talked about them, you know. I, I, and I think, like, today you have Oppenheimer, and, you know, it feels like we're moving more in a direction where, like, real movies can, <laughs> can be part of the conversation. But, like, if you were looking at the eight years before the AMC commercial, it's like, what else do you have that is, like, a you know, as a serious movie for adults that people are going to recognize. Yeah, I mean, it is wild to think about that. It's like, in in all of that Marvel saturation time, like, La La Land breaks through, like, as being, like, commercially successful and critically successful and just, like, a movie darling, you know? Yeah. As I said, Ryan Gosling had his band. Uh, Emma Stone was doing cabaret when Damien Giselle met her. So they 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 were both like in their music. Neither bag. of them like had never done music in their life, but they weren't like you know uh, musical actors. Uh, and Ryan Gosling learned how to play piano for the movie. Yes, I love that fact. I, like this is if I were an actor who only did like one movie every two years, I would absolutely just like learn the skill just because. Absolutely. The musical numbers are all shot and performed in one take, which is, yeah. you know, how they often did it back in the day. And I think that adds a lot to the the magic of it. Uh, it was shot on film on like Super 35 with a CinemaScope ax- aspect ratio. But even though it says shot in CinemaScope at the beginning, it wasn't technically shot in CinemaScope because that technology doesn't exist anymore. Okay, liar alert. <laughs> little bit a <laughs> little bit of a scandal i don't know how they got the maybe you could just say that maybe because the brand is defunct like <laughs> they, they can't stop you from saying it okay okay so yeah okay so i'm i'm seeing that it was shot in the same aspect ratio that's yeah. how they got away with it i guess okay i feel like we've been through most of the songs we've uh talked about another day of sun we've talked about someone in the crowd and the roommates, and the party, and the cannonball, and all that. Um, I love the way the music slows down in someone in a crowd before the cannonball. Um, yes. What a waste of a lovely night we talked about. That's a great sequence. The, you know, And it's a great moment to highlight how they're not really singers or dancers. That's like the first song that they really do together. The bit that always sticks in my head where the jazz club that Sebastian wants to buy is currently a samba tapas place. 
Oh, yeah. Can we talk about that for one second? So I think a Samba Tapas place actually sounds amazing. Yeah, I don't really get what the complaint is about Uh, (laughs) I think it does a good job of making him seem like a fucking Grinch because I'm like, a Samba Tapas place, do you know what they're really doing out there in the world right now? It's like, this bank is also another bank. Like, that's that's yeah. the type of public space that we're currently facing down. Yeah, it feels like he's not, he's only complaining because, you know, he wanted it for himself. Because he's ob- obsessed with jazz from 1957. Like, literally, it's like the least relatable thing ever. I'm like, I, if somebody took me on a date to a samba <laughs> tapas place, I'd be like, uh, in heaven. I'm like, this is amazing. Yeah. There's tapas and then we'll be doing samba? What? <laughs> There's Finn Whitrock, who you mentioned, and the. Yes. <laughs> The husband at the end is um, Tom Everett Scott. Oh, yes. I actually have a huge thing I want to say about that. An unbelievably old person to cast in that role. I'm like, the guy from That Thing You Do, he was fresh-faced back then. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, sorry, Miles Teller put him in for a couple seconds right there. Like, that would have made more sense. <laughs> I, I, it really irritated me because when I first saw this movie, I didn't know who that guy was. So it never clocked for me. But now I'm acutely aware of who he is. And I'm like, what are we doing with him here? Because, listen, Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling play opposite all the time, but he is actually 10 years older than her. Tom Everett Scott right. is, like, 20 years older than her. So, like, no. It's a no from me. Very strange. I feel like the first time I saw this movie, I got in my head that, like, that like the, the boyfriend at the beginning and the husband at the end were the same person. And then I watched it again, and I was like, oh, they're the opposite <laughs> person. <laughs> They're like, yeah, they're completely opposite. That's actually so funny. It would have been too depressing, I think, if it was the guy from the beginning. You can't marry the guy who's explaining that Nicaragua is underdeveloped. That's too dead inside. She had to have had like an alternate happy-ish feeling ending. But do it with someone who isn't so much older than her. Mm -hmm. Also, I do have to say... Like, her having a child didn't really click for me. Because it's supposed to be five years later. I'm like, so she got all the way famous... And has, like, a three-year-old? That's not clicking for me. Like, she found new love. She got all the way famous. She had a baby. That's, like, the fastest five years anyone has ever had in their whole lives. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess she got the role in the movie, which took, which had, like, a nine-month shoot, right? <laughs> they, right. They, they were like, <laughs> like, nine months because they had to, like, write the script. <laughs> we're going to rehearse for three months, and then we're going to shoot the movie for six months. <laughs> but then, like... Say she got fa- say that movie was a big deal. That would have been like at at least a year later that it comes out, uh, and and that's you know after a year of production. So we're already two years in, and she could maybe just now be like an indie star. <laughs> Right. And like, so in the middle of that, like in the middle of the Oscar press run, she's falling in love with an old guy and they're deciding one year after that, not even six months maybe to have a child because that was not like a new baby. That was like a kid who can color. And she's (laughs) right. And she's reached the point, you know, that much time later where like she can go she can't go get a a coffee on the Warner Brothers lot. Everyone's going to be starstruck by her. Right. It's very strange. It's so strange. And it, it, I do, I like, I guess I just think it should have been 10 years later. I'm like, I get why you wouldn't want to do like eight, because that's a weird number. But just do 10. Like 10 is like, all right, I see what's going on. Um, and even then, if it was 10, it would be like her husband would feel less old to me <laughs> in some ways. I do like when when JK Simmons comes back in that ending sequence and like, you know, is angry, but then he's smiling and he snaps his finger. <laughs> it's yeah, no, that's a fun one. Ugh, I do love. They JK got Simmons. they got good use out of J.K. Simmons in this. I feel like if you can put him in there, 
You got it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just generally, like, back to, like, the white guy does jazz. Like, it is it is interesting that they don't throw in even, like, a, a conversation between Ryan Gosling and, like, one of the trumpet players that he is supposedly so admiring. Like, you'd think they would do something to be like, well, he's pals with all these people, but he's, like, not pals with them, you know? It's, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> In, in the sequence after they've gotten together and they're like hitting it off, but he's not in the band yet, he is like performing on stage with those guys at the jazz club, but he never talks to them. <laughs> yeah, he's never like, hey, John, how are you? <laughs> I did think it was great when John Legend says to him, jazz is dying because of people like you. I, I, I feel yeah. like I didn't remember like how forcefully he was like no this is like like you're the one you're the traditionalist who's who's trying to like you only care about jazz from the 1950s right he's very like in some ways you're the guy obsessed with classical music in 1915 preventing the jazz from breaking free exactly there's an objectification that that sebastian does that the movie doesn't totally comment on i feel like chazelle kind of tries to speak to that more directly in Babylon. And I feel like, again, I think if you put these those two films side by side, those two movies about Hollywood together, I think it kind of elevates both of them to think of it that way. But no, I definitely think it's true. And I think there is there is a lot to how this feels like Chazelle kind of playing out a fantasy. And there's so much that doesn't really add up. And there are so many characters who are ultimately objects and i think sebastian is too but i think you know if he's the self-insert then colors things in a pretty negative light yeah definitely but i think it's important to not try to be in the movie you're watching you're watching a spectacle i think think of it that way you'll have the time of your life (laughs) yeah yeah I, i i definitely think overall i think this is a good movie and it's certainly like an impactful movie and a much more impactful movie than a lot of its contemporaries i mean like there there are very few movies like this that are as unforgettable as this is yeah absolutely um are you a big movie crier i can be i definitely cried uh in the the audition scene in the in the theater that was that was the big cry moment for me okay i definitely i cried the first time I watched it, like, four different times, and I cried the this third time that I watched it, like, four different times. Like, I just was like, oh, sure. you're getting me. Like, when she runs and is in the – to meet him at Rebel Without a Cause, and he sees her, like, in the projector light, I was like, tear to my eye. That's so beautiful. Like, mm-hmm. it, I don't know. Actually, for me, I think the first time it was, like, the audition scene and the ending that that I was crying over, and this time I was not as affected by the ending, which um, I know you talked very strongly about the ending at the beginning, but I think uh, on this watch, I was, like, I was more like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I get that. I did cry a lot this time, too. I cried more the first time, but I, I still cried this time. I um I think that it's... Whether or not, you know, it's moving you to cry or whatever, I think that it's hard to end a movie, just generally. Sure. There are a lot of movies that I really like that I think that the ending sort of misses a touch. Like, whether or not it's happy or sad or whatever, like, it's not as interesting as, like, usually the beginning or the middle of a movie. Um, So I I am just generally impressed, I think, by how well the ending works. Um, Yeah, I I think... um what I'm negative on in this movie is mostly the middle, uh, which I think is true of a lot of people who don't like this movie. I think the I think the opening is some of the best stuff. I think the ending 
has a lot of interesting ideas going on. In the middle, I think it loses focus and, you know, uh, and then loses some of the spark. I was going to say, so John Legend appears um, an hour and two minutes in. And while he does have an interesting conversation with Ryan Gosling, I think, yeah, to your point of like, how does the music industry even work? I feel like they do just kind of bumble the flow of that for sure. So I, I yeah. I understand the middle is bum- is a little bumbled. Yeah, well, you know, overall, uh, as I said, I I think it's kind of a messy movie. It, it has some really stunning stuff in it, and I do think it is overall good. And I'm glad that it exists. You know, I think I I think I think all those same things about Babylon, and Babylon is more the kind of movie that I like than than La La Land is. Interesting, interesting. We I think we might have to do a follow up episode about Babylon just based on. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> on I what you've so. said so far, there's like a lot to get into there. Um, I <laughs> yeah, do, there is. yeah. Like, I'm obviously very pro La La Land, but I do just love. I love a movie that inspires such discourse. Like, I had a really good time. Like, there's like a New York Times article from like early 2017 that's like La La Land, love it, hate it, so do we, and it's just like everyone <laughs> on the like Times art staff being like. So I thought this fucking sucked. And then like another person being like, it's actually so slay. Another person is like, is this 14 Oscar nominations worth of greatness? It ties the record held by All About Eve. And I got to say, La La Land is no All About Eve. And it's like, just, yeah. just these kinds of nuggets are are the, like, I, I have so much fun with. Like, I, I love it. I love it. Love the movies. Love movie criticism. It's the best thing in the world. <laughs> yeah. I think about modern musicals that I maybe liked more than La La Land. And I think of things like... Uh, Dicks more recently, but also um, Annette, and but then I think of these, and I'm like, would these have been made <laughs> Not if Annette. La La Land hadn't happened? Yeah, I mean that's no, that's a good question. I mean, Dicks the musical, I think is, I think that's more like um, on the heels of something like Pop Star, you know, like that's the forefather of Dicks the musical. But Annette, we might have to do another episode on. <laughs> we love Annette. <laughs> <laughs> we love um, each other so much. <laughs> <laughs> they love each other so much. We love it, uh, but she is just a baby. Yeah, but but again, I think we are now in an age where, like, at least once a year, one some indie movie musical is going to come out, and and you know, they don't they they're not as much in the conversation as La La Land was. But I think La La Land kind of opened the floodgates for financiers to be like, oh, musical, okay, let's let's get behind this. I and I hope it. I hope it that that legacy stays. It's always fun to watch people try. I Annette, what a what an experience that was. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's. I think it's overall a good thing. It definitely didn't do what um people were saying it might do, which is like bring it all the way back. You know, like oh, like this is gonna be like it's the fifties again. We're having singing in the rain and but you know what it did, Cherbourg. I think in the twenty first century for a lot of it you have one mode of movie musical and it's like the rob marshall based on a broadway show like not very well directed not really adding anything to it like like there's that very like polished hollywood version of what a movie musical could be that i think was all you got and la la land opened the door for like you know like like indie film studios and people with like actual visions can like make a musical like it doesn't all have to be that like into the woods lane of what of what a musical is no no you're definitely right um or did mama mia do that no i'm just kidding 
I mean, you know, Mamma Mia, it, it made more money than Iron Man. And, you know, if only we had learned the right and lesson from it. S- and say that, I guess we did get Mamma Mia too. It's just, you know, it's excellent to chat about, I must say. It's, it's. Yeah, I feel like we could have a whole other conversation discourse. about it. Like, if we lost the footage for this, we could just do another La La Land episode. It would we be could totally just start different. again and go, go on a different tangent about it. No, absolutely. Like, there's so many directions to go. Thank you so How much. How do for we end? <laughs> is that is that what I say, you say? I, thank you so much for joining. I say th- I say thank you so much for joining me, and then you tell me about your podcast, Lop Soup, and you tell the people at home about it. <laughs> okay, okay. Do we? Uh, okay, okay. Do you fine. want me to do All that right, again? Because like we're, we're yeah, gonna leave this in so anyway. Let's do it again. But... No. I'm, yeah. <laughs> okay. So now Cassandra, that we practice, so I'm ready for joining me. <laughs> thank you so much for joining Bye. me. I'll say it as many times as you need. Okay, one more time. Cassandra, thank you so much for joining me. (laughs) My pleasure, Rocky. Thank you for having me. Um, I will say I plug my own podcast. You plug my own own podcast. (laughs) Tell us about your own podcast. (laughs) Um, I have my own podcast called Flop Soup. If you love Culture Gab, we are doing that over there. Um... Like I said, there's a whole episode about musicals on Broadway, if that interests you. Um, at any given moment, we could accidentally end up talking about La La Land for sure. So catch us over there. Flop Soup. We're covering pop culture and flop culture. Yes. And uh, I-, I love the show Flop Soup. I do listen to it pretty regularly. Um, I definitely got to get on there at some point. Yeah, we got to get you on there. Thank you to everyone who's been listening. Also, if you like the show, you can you know rate or follow or whatever it is wherever you listen to it and um you can share it with your friends let people know you like the show that's one of the best things you can do next time i don't know exactly what we will be doing we might be talking about another fallout boy album oh I disagree, Gary. I disagree, Gary.